Welcome to Tisky Sour. We have one familiar story for you tonight, Boris Johnson and corruption. Yes, how many shows will we start with the various scandals that just keep breaking every day with this guy? We also have some more unfamiliar ones. Novak Djokovic, I think it will be the first time we discuss him on this show, as well as Molly May from Love Island. Lots more coming up as well. Aaron Bastani, welcome to your first Tisky Sour of 2022. Michael, thanks for having me. We're not talking about COVID tonight. It's going to be basically a COVID-free show for once. It seems that every day a new scandal emerges concerning the behaviour of Boris Johnson. For weeks there has been revelation after revelation about lockdown parties that followed an attempt to get a corrupt MP off the hook. And today it's the corruption of Boris Johnson himself which is in question. Once again, this concerns the renovation of his Downing Street flat. As you'll remember, when Boris Johnson and his wife Carrie moved into Downing Street, they were shocked by the John Lewis decor they inherited from Theresa May. And to sort it out, they hired in a high-end designer, Lulu Little, to renovate. That refurb was pricier than any undertaken by former prime ministers. It cost at least £122,000, way above the £30,000 which is that the publicly funded stipend that prime ministers get to redecorate. They therefore needed money from outside sources and Boris Johnson had a plan. He would create a blind trust where donors could anonymously pay for Downing Street renovations. The idea was that anonymous donations could create, could, couldn't or, or would avoid creating the conflicts of interest that would otherwise be associated with donations. However, the blind trust was never created and the renovations were paid for by a Tory donor, David Brownlow. Boris Johnson has always denied knowing it was Lord Brownlow who stumped up the cash. That meant, um, so the story goes, that there was no conflict of interest. He merely believed Brownlow was taking responsibility for setting up the blind trust. However, messages released this week put that in doubt. So these messages were sent between Johnson and Brownlow back in November 2020. Boris Johnson says, Hi David, I am afraid parts of our flat are still a bit of a tip and I'm keen to allow Lulu Little to get on with it. Can I possibly ask her to get in touch with you for approvals? Many thanks and all best Boris. P.S. I'm on the great exhibition plan will revert. Lord Brownlow responds, Afternoon, Prime Minister. I hope you're both well. Sorry for the delay. I was out for a walk and didn't have my work phone with me. Of course, get Lulu to call me and we'll get it sorted ASAP. Thanks for thinking about GE2. Best wishes, David. He goes on, I should have said, as the trust isn't set up yet, will be in January, approval is a doddle, as it's only me and I know where the money will come from. So as soon as Lulu calls, we can crack on, David. Now, that doesn't sound very blind to me. Of course, Boris Johnson will say Lord Brownlow didn't say it was him who was, who was putting the money there, but it was clear to Johnson who was pulling the strings when it came for paying for those renovations. Even more concerning there, there's a hint as to what Brownlow might be getting in return. In the first message there, Boris Johnson ends his request for cash by saying, P.S., I'm on the Great Exhibition Plan will revert. Now, the Great Exhibition Plan, that was a Festival of Britain-type event that Brownlow wanted to help organise. And in Brownlow's response, after telling Johnson that, yes, he can sort out the cash he wants, he says, 
Thanks for thinking about GE2. GE2 stands for Great Exhibition 2. The first Great Exhibition was in 1851. Number 10, say the Great Exhibition idea was dropped, but records show Lord Brownlow did meet the Culture Secretary to discuss it a few weeks after his exchange with the PM. Well, I'm just kind of flabbergasted at what Boris Johnson was doing in late November 2020, Michael. You know, I think this was a Sunday at 1 p.m., so it's his day off. We'll give him some credit. And he's sending messages to a, to a donor, it seems, about, you know, a, a feature wall in his Westminster shag pad. That's what it is. With his pushy wife, Carrie Simmons. And I really do think it, it, it speaks volumes about the measure of the man. That as I think more than 200 people died that day, you know, the weekend figures tended to be lower. I think uh, 29th of November, 2020, uh, around 200 people died. We were facing the, the prospect of losing Christmas. Of course, we did lose Christmas, but that you know, hadn't, hadn't yet come to pass. And this was what he was prioritizing. This garish, gauche, disgusting uh, interior design. I don't want that kind of guy to be prime minister. I mean, we'll talk about this more over the course of the show, you know. I don't think necessarily Boris Johnson is a nasty man or a mean-spirited man. I do think that. But I, I don't think that's the central problem to his premiership or his inability to govern properly. In the words of Keir Starmer, who for once I will give credit for, a decent line, he's a trivial man. And this is a very trivial issue for a prime minister to be concentrating on in the middle of a national crisis. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that, on that line from Keir Starmer. I thought that was pretty smart. Let's talk about the other development on this story, which is why we are finding out about these messages only now, because they were, of course, sent over a year ago. Well, here we need to go through the various investigations into the flat refurbishment row and what they did and didn't discover. So first, let's look at the first investigation that was into the flat conducted by Lord Gate. Lord Gate was hired by Boris Johnson to be his independent advisor on standards, and Gate spent his first month in the job interviewing relevant parties about the payment, and in May 2021, he cleared the Prime Minister of misconduct. He did, however, say that Johnson acted unwisely. Keita Geit's judgment in that case was his belief that Boris Johnson didn't know where the money to pay for the flat refurbishment had come from. So he was unwise because he should have looked a little bit harder. On to the second investigation. This was undertaken by the Electoral Commission and it was tougher than Gates one. That's because the Electoral Commission have statutory powers to ask for evidence. So they, they can demand people show them emails and, and such like. In December, the Electoral Commission fined the Conservative £17,800 for breaching electoral law. That was for failing to properly declare the identity of donors. But the most significant part of the Electoral Commission report was not about the Tory party and what they did or did not disclose, but about Boris Johnson himself. That's because their report revealed that Boris Johnson had exchanged WhatsApp messages with Lord Brownlow about the flat refurbishment. That hadn't been revealed to Lord Geit. So that appeared to undermine Geit's authority, and that meant that after the revelation from the Electoral Commission, he reopened his investigation in light of those new messages. And Geit has now reported back on his findings. He sent an open letter to the Prime Minister, which said... It is plainly unsatisfactory that my earlier advice was unable to rely on the fullest possible disclosure of relevant information. 
And he also went on to say, a number of my original conclusions may have required further examination or qualification had the missing exchange been known to me. However, he did conclude, nonetheless, that even taking into account the messages, Boris Johnson had not broken the ministerial code. Regardless of of whether or not he would have seen these messages, he would have still said, no, he didn't break the code. However, of course, questions do remain as to why Boris Johnson didn't reveal his messages earlier. On that front, he says it was because he had switched phone since the exchange took place and then that he forgot they ever happened. Here's how he responded to questions as to whether that particular excuse stacks up. Um, Lord Geit's letters are going to be published soon. Do you really expect the public to believe you didn't disclose key messages with Lord Brownlow about the refurbishment of your flat because you had a new phone? I followed the ministerial guidance at all times, and, and, and yes. Surely you'd remember such an exchange even if you couldn't see the messages. I followed the ministerial guidance at all times. Boris Johnson obviously hopes that, you know, if he refuses to engage, these questions will go away. I'm ignoring the question. I'm saying I followed the ministerial code. Is this going to work for him? In this instance, who knows? But I just want to return to my previous point, Michael. You know, it was a Sunday. They were probably having a roast dinner. Carrie says, come on, Boris, the, the, the flat's a mess. Let's get on with this. And look where we've ended up. Will it be the, will it be the sword of Damocles, which ends his tenure as prime minister? Probably not. But as we've talked about so many times, these things are additive. And I think actually in a more sort of important way, it tells us something quite significant about the nature of Boris Johnson as a politician. We'll talk about that later. So, like I say, is this the coup de grace? Probably not. But I don't think he's Teflon either. Not anymore. Those really significant moments we've had, they are pictures of parties. They're videos of staffers essentially mocking the public. They're Dominic Cummings standing in front of the public and taking them all for fools. When there is sort of like video evidence or, or photographic evidence of them, you know, taking the piss out of all of us, it clearly has much greater cut through than, than this will because it is, it is fairly complicated. I think the effect of this might more be for, you know, maybe his backbenchers, maybe the people around him, because it does make him seem like a very trivial person who is just going to keep making unforced error after unforced error. You might say unforced error is being overly kind to him. This wasn't an error. This is how he, this is how he behaves. This is, this is not a bug. It's a feature. But at the same time, as you're saying, this is, this does just make him look like a trivial man. This was in the, you know, we, we were at this point of time just going into the most deadly phase of, of COVID-19, which was basically down to his own mistakes. It was him who was saying, oh, no, we don't, we don't want any extra restrictions. We'll just ride this one out. And then within a couple of months, we had over a thousand people dying a day. And that's because he was distracted by his wallpaper. Now, even if that's quite complex in terms of public attitudes, I think the people around him, that doesn't tell you, oh, this is a guy who is going to get his priorities into shape because this is just clearly a guy who, who cannot prioritize, right? Even if you were a kind of malevolent person, you'd say, look, Carrie, we don't need to do this. People are already angry at me, angry enough at me already. I might not care if people die, but I've got to look as if I care. And he wasn't even able to do that. Precisely. And I think, Michael, what it boils down to is, is there somebody in the Conservative Party who would like to replace him, who wants to leverage these points of vulnerability? Because if, if there is, and if it's Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak, he's screwed because there are multiple points of vulnerability. And it does boil down to, are there going to be several dozen backbenchers who think, I'm more likely to keep my seat with Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak than with Boris Johnson? For now, I think that's an open question. I don't think we actually have a meaningful answer to that until after the local elections, which are coming up in May. But that, that's the real thing here. So 
is it enough to get rid of Boris Johnson? No. Are these posing real opportunities for others? Absolutely. And and to repeat about how this is merely the latest expression of his personality. You know, in 2004, we have 9-11. We have war in Iraq in 2003. What does Boris Johnson do in 2004? Is he writing some neo-realist account of foreign policy in a post-9-11 world? No, he's writing a comical novel called 72 Virgins, which includes racism towards black people, anti-Semitism. 2007, as we're about to go into the teeth of the global financial crisis, the biggest economic cataclysm since the Wall Street crash, What's he doing? He publishes a book, Michael, about driving and pushy parents. And so this is the same guy. It's just as a society, we decided somehow to make him the prime minister. Probably unwise. We had the particular misfortune of doing that in the greatest pandemic in a century. So a bit of a double whammy there, Michael. And also don't forget, this is a gentleman who on entering Downing Street as the Prime Minister, wanted to write a biography of Shakespeare rather than do the day job of running the country because he needed to earn more money. So, yes, it's a problem. And these aren't just, to, to kind of conclude and, and summarise what we've both said, these aren't just problems of public presentation to the electorate. It also really matters to his, his backbench MPs. And if they think these vulnerabilities are going to lose them their jobs, he has big problems. Like I say, that comes into real focus after May. Um, let's move on to our next story. Protests across Kazakhstan, which started as a civilian display of anger at increasing fuel prices, have turned into the largest anti-government demonstration since the country gained independence in 1990. Protesters have been met with a strong show of force by the president, Kasim Jamal Tokayev, who has given his security forces the order to open fire with lethal force. This video is from the country's historic capital, Almaty, last night, and it captures the sound of widespread gunfire and shelling. A key target of the protests is this man, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. He ran Kazakhstan as a dictatorship for around 30 years. So that was from the independence of the country. He became president in 1990. He resigned in 2019 following civilian protest, but he continued to serve as chairman of the Assembly of the People of Kazakhstan, and he handpicked the current president as his successor. That situation essentially left Nazarbayev as the power behind the throne. It also kept him immune from prosecution for any crimes committed during his regime. That included widespread corruption. Nazarbayev and his family are accused of funneling some £330 million of the country's wealth into London properties. Nazarbayev has now fled the country. And protesters have torn down statues of the former leader. You can see a truck being used to pull down the bronze figure before it's set upon by protesters with what look like machetes. The demonstrators are calling for political reform, an end to widespread corruption by political leaders and improved standards of living. They present a clear challenge to Kazakhstan's authoritarian regime. And as a result, the internet and mobile phone networks have been blacked out. The president has now ordered the army to shoot civilian demonstrators who he calls bandits and terrorists. 
So far, dozens of protesters have been killed, with more than 3,000 detained. 18 members of the police have been killed and hundreds injured. Kazakhstan is a member of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, a defense deal between Russia and various former Soviet states, and it has invoked the treaty to invite Russian troops to restore order. However, this pact is only supposed to be invoked for external threats, which is perhaps why the president has branded the protesters terrorists. So what is the global context in which these demonstrations and this repression takes place? In Western media, the focus tends to be on Vladimir Putin, who is seen as a bulwark of authoritarianism in the region. That is surely true. However, less often mentioned is the role of the West, and in particular Britain, in propping up autocratic regimes in the region. As has already been mentioned, Kazakhstan's rulers have used the London property market to launder stolen funds, but the British establishment is also more directly implicated in repression by the country's military. The same troops that are now firing on Kazakh civilians were trained by the British Armed Forces as recently as 2020. This is Tory MP Colonel Bob Stewart on the training of Kazakh officers. I, I went to Sandhurst, and by the way, I'm delighted that there are uh, three Kazakh officer cadets have been there and two other officers have attended the Army, uh, British Army Command Staff course. Delighted that that's happening because that is important. Earlier, I spoke to Phil Miller of Declassified UK about the relationship between Kazakhstan and Britain, and I began by asking him how the British establishment had enabled authoritarianism to flourish in the country. In 2011, there was a, a massacre of around 14 oil workers who were protesting for higher wages. And uh, that incident became quite notorious because Tony Blair was then paid to advise him how to deal with the international criticism following that massacre. And Prince Andrew has also been involved in, in property deals with that president's son-in-law. So he's had high-level support from both Tony Blair and, um, and Prince Andrew, but they, they weren't acting as, as sort of rogue, wasn't like a freelance foreign policy. The, the British Foreign Office has, has very much been supporting UK businesses in Kazakhstan, which is a major producer of oil and gas. And military training and, and attempts at arms deals have, have gone alongside that as well. This all might be somewhat surprising to UK audience because usually what we hear is that it's Putin and it's Russia who's backing authoritarians in the region. The UK, America, NATO, etc. What they're trying to do is, is promote democracy. But what you've documented is that essentially you've got the British military and British financial interests, British politicians who are also, along with Putin, supporting authoritarians in, in, in Kazakhstan. Is that, that's correct, essentially, isn't it? Yes, and Kazakhstan has been happy to have support from Russia, China and the West. Um, it's let every major power have, have a slice of its oil and gas wealth. And in return, we've all gone along with propping up the regime. Kazakhstani officers have been training at Sandhurst, and there seems to have been an annual military exercise of UK and US troops out in Kazakhstan teaching them so-called peacekeeping exercises, but these seem to involve things like public order training and riot control, which given what's happened in the last few days in Kazakhstan, where the army and the police have been seen to be involved in, in shooting of protesters, this looks like the UK has been deeply complicit in, in supporting those forces um, in the years leading up to all of this. And, and like you say, I mean, this is completely consistent with the reality of UK foreign policy. I mean, we're looking at Kazakhstan right now, but you could 
tell a very similar story for Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan, just in, in that region. And then obviously, you know, all the Gulf dictatorships, Egypt, Uganda. We did a study at Declassified and we found that um, over half of the countries in the world that Freedom House ranked as not free, as authoritarian, were, were being supported to one degree or the other by the UK. So actually, the majority of the world's repressive states are, are being backed by the UK, contrary to this idea that you know, the UK and NATO are standing up for democracy around the world. I mean, one of the largest armies in NATO is Turkey, which is itself an authoritarian regime. So um, th- this is a key myth that, that, that Whitehall wants um, the UK public to believe. But any kind of basic study of UK foreign policy and the kind of countries that are, that are being trained at Sandhurst um, shows very quickly that democracy is, is by no means a priority for UK foreign policy. Helpful for the UK and anyone supporting the, the Kazakhstan regime up to this point would be that people don't know very much about it at all. Obviously, now it's in the headlines. We know that there is a government that is shooting protesters. We also know that the, the Russian military is is now in, in the country on the invite of, of the president. Do you think this could change British policy at this point in time? And I suppose also, do our interests in Kazakhstan and also the interests that Kazakh politicians have in London, especially in the property market, give the British government actually some, some leverage here? Do, is there leverage that the British government could use to try and pressure the Kazakh regime to stop shooting protesters, for example? Well, there is tens of millions of pounds of, of property in the UK, which is owned by the Kazakhstan's ruling family and, and its its uh, cronies. So um, conceivably, there and there have been some attempts at trying to, to confiscate those assets, but um, this has been allowed to continue to, to one, one degree or another, as it is with a lot of other you know, repressive regimes that own property in, in London. I don't think that moving forward, the UK government's priority will be promoting democracy in, in Kazakhstan. It's been quite happy over the last couple of decades to allow this authoritarian regime to to be in power there because it has served the UK's interests and it and it's given UK companies access to the oil and gas market. So I, I don't think their main concern at the moment will be promoting democracy in Kazakhstan. It will be making sure that UK companies continue to be able to extract the resources from there. That was Phil Miller from Declassified UK, which do some of the best investigations on the relationships between the British establishment and repressive regimes around the world. I do recommend you check out their website. We're going to go straight on to our next story. Serbian tennis star Novak Djokovic has had his Australian visa revoked after arriving in the country for the Australian Open. The world number one is currently detained in an immigration centre after being denied entry to the country. He awaits a court ruling that will determine whether he will be deported. Djokovic, who has not revealed his vaccination status but is on record expressing doubts about them, appears to have fallen foul of Australia's policy that all incoming travellers must be double vaccinated unless they have a valid medical exemption. The tennis star flew to Australia after the regional government where the competition is to be held and Tennis Australia accepted he had an exemption, but a public outcry pushed the federal government to get involved. This is Australia's Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Now, finally, on the issue of Mr Djokovic, um, rules are rules. And there are no special cases. Rules are rules. It's what I said to you yesterday. Uh, that's the policy of the government and has been our government's 
strong border protection policies, and particularly in relation to the pandemic, that has ensured that Australia has one of the lowest death rates from COVID anywhere in the world. Australia has now revoked Djokovic's visa, and Djokovic's father is really pissed. He's not in detention, he's in prison. They took all of his stuff, even his wallet. They left him with just a phone and no change of clothes, nowhere to wash his face. He's in prison. Our pride is a prisoner of these idiots. Shame on them. The whole free world together with Serbia should rise. This isn't a battle for Serbia, Novak. It's a battle for seven or something billion people. For freedom of expression, free speech, freedom of behaviour. Novak didn't break any laws, just as seven billion people didn't break any laws. They want to subdue us and throw us all on our knees. It won't fly. Freedom, Novak. We're all with you. Djokovic has long expressed scepticism about vaccines in April 2020. He said he was opposed to vaccination. Later, during a Facebook live stream, he said he wouldn't want to be forced by someone to take a vaccine in order to compete in a competition or, or travel. He said, I'm curious about well-being and how we can empower our metabolism to be in the best shape to defend against imposters like COVID-19. So he's putting his faith in metabolism over vaccines. Djokovic has shared a few other thoughts on science, saying during an Instagram Live in May 2020 that I know some people that through that energetical transformation, through the power of prayer, through the power of gratitude, they managed to turn the most toxic food or maybe most polluted water into the most healing water because water reacts. Molecules in the water react to our emotions, to what is being said. Djokovic, in his autobiography, Serve to Win, also describes watching a test in which someone directed loving vibes to one glass of water while swearing at and insulting another. He wrote that after a few days, the insulted glass was tinted slightly green and the other glass was still bright and crystal clear. We haven't yet mentioned telekinesis and telepathy, but Novak has us covered. In a shortlist magazine interview, he said, you have this thing called telepathy, right? Or this thing called telekinesis or instinct intuition. I feel like these are the gifts from this higher order, the source, the God, whatever, that allows us to understand the higher power and higher order in ourselves. It's a pity he didn't read the minds of Australian border control before he arrived. Aaron... Djokovic seems like quite a funny character, but is his detention something which we should all be protesting? Is is his dad right that he stands with seven billion people fighting for freedom? I mean, it's quite impressive, Michael, in so much as normally, you know, people on the left say that there is a big difference between how people of colour and white people are treated with regards to border regimes or the wealthy and the poor. You know, people can buy passports, for instance, for, for, for many countries. In this country, we have something I think called tier three visas. You could basically buy the ability to, to live in the UK if you wanted to, if you had enough cash. And Novak Djokovic, despite being one of the world's most successful sports people, I think he's worth about more than 200 million US dollars. He's being treated the same as everybody else. I, I, I think even if that's just a statement of intent, a political, a political show by the government. I still think that's really positive. They're doing it perhaps particularly in the context of a, of a, of a pandemic, but I, I think the idea that the law applies equally to all is, is, is really good. In terms of what rights he's being given and so on, I mean, it's probably, you know, this is what we, 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 we need 
objective and impartial, well-resourced journalism for to be going there and to see the facilities that are available to him. I'm sure he's not accustomed to them, but clearly he shouldn't be mistreated either. I don't see why his wallet would need to be taken from him, for instance. Uh, but the stuff that you sort of ended on there, Michael, some great research, that is fascinating. And, you know, it really does offer a glimpse into what's been called the cosmic right and their approach to COVID. I'm not saying that Novak Djokovic is like QAnon. We're going to talk later on about, you know, Majid Nawaz. But there is this wide sort of spectrum of people saying fundamentally anti-rationalist, anti-scientific, quite frankly, ridiculous things in response to a pandemic which has killed people. Now, he has a right to say those things. You have a right to think that you have the capacity for telep telepathy. One day, maybe scientists will discover it, right? The whole point of science is it, it explains phenomena which previously we, we didn't understand. We gave them the, the descriptor of miraculous or mystical or God-given. Now, I'm not saying those things aren't necessarily true, but there's certainly no re reasonable explanation for them. And looking at one glass and praying to it and making it different to the other, clearly nonsensical. It is interesting in so much as it offers a glimpse into actually a surprisingly widespread set of views, by no means majority views, important to say minority views. But with Djokovic, even a guy who's young, you know, wide range of information available to him, globetrotting, lots of money, even somebody like that uh, can be tempted and can fall prey to fundamentally lines of thinking and reasoning which I think ultimately conclude in, in conspiracy theories. I, I'm not sure if Djokovic has gone into all the conspiracy. I mean, we're going to talk about magic now, as you say, or it's much more clear in terms of conspiracy theories. With Djokovic, from what I've seen, it is, it's more just that sort of like kind of hippie-ish new wave kind of ideas. And I kind of, in a way, I kind of find it quite charming when incredibly successful people believe quite wacky things because it's, I kind of enjoy the incongruence. What this issue does raise, or what the situation of, of Djokovic does raise, is I suppose Australia's border policy. And I think you're, you're absolutely right, Aaron, that the thing which is in an odd way refreshing about this is that a very rich and successful person is being held to the same standards as everyone else. I think what has happened here is actually that the, the government, the, the national government in Australia, which is run by the Conservatives, I think that the Liberal Party there, ha has seen a political opportunity here because the Labour-run region where the Australian Open is and Tennis Australia, I think, were very keen to get Novak Djokovic in because he's world number one. They wanted him to compete. And then it, it, it's the, the national government that get to stand up and say, look, we're the populist defenders of the people who make everyone follow the same rules. At the same time, I'm sure some of our viewers will be uncomfortable celebrating anyone being held in detention when they've arrived in a country. And that then raises, is this policy sensible? And is a policy whereby you only let double vaccinated people in a country sensible? I think that at the moment, actually, is a bit up in the air. On the one hand, I think to say, oh, Australia should have a more relaxed COVID policy would be silly. They've obviously dealt with COVID much better than we have over the past two years. Way fewer deaths, more freedoms because they haven't been in endless lockdowns. And that has been in large part because of their border policy. At the same time, the latest data is showing, for example, that even a booster after 10 weeks only gives you 40% protection against infection. Still loads and loads of infection against hospitalization. So it's absolutely worth every one of us taking it. But it's not necessarily that significant when it comes to transmission. So if it turns out that all the vaccines do is protect you against hospitalizations, but not transmission, then it does become more of a personal choice. Aaron, what do you think about the policy? Aside from Novak Djokovic, the person, 
I mean, I think we have the same policy actually that you can't come in here without you can't come to Britain without being double vaccinated. I'll need to double check that. But obviously, this is this is becoming a widespread policy around the world. Do you think it's going to be sustainable, even if it turns out that you know, even when you're triple vaccinated or quadruple vaccinated, you're still almost as likely to transmit COVID-19. I say 40%, it's a real reduction, but you're still able to transmit COVID-19, let's put it like that. I think you, you've put that super well, Michael. And I, and I think you're absolutely right to say that a vaccine, given the nature of Omicron, you know, it, it has changed sort of the fundamentals of the debate. So previously would have said, well, even though he's young, he's a sports person, you know, very low probability of him getting sick, really sick from COVID. Still could happen, of course. But very low probability of him getting really sick. So if he wants to take personal responsibility for that, he has a personal choice, bodily autonomy. You could make all those things to speculation, but of course, in the context of a pandemic, the point is there's the epidemiological side to it too, right? Which means you're a vector of transmission for people who may be less robust than you, who may be more vulnerable. They're older, they have chronic conditions, et cetera, et cetera. And you're right that Omicron's changed the nature of that debate. I think once you're in a country, as we've talked about previously, I think for some reason people have said, oh, Aaron and Michael, they favor vaccine passports. All I've ever said is I, I am in favor of people having to submit a, a test on the day to go into a large indoor area. I think that's very wise. I think we're going to have to live with that for quite a while, by the way, vaccines or not. And I think you're right. You know, it does raise, and, and when I made my previous points, kind of quasi-mocking Novak Djokovic, that wasn't to say that I, I think, you know, he shouldn't be allowed in the country. I think that's a very reasonable debate if you have multiple tests before leaving, once arriving, before you go into the various venues. I can see an argument as to why somebody can do that without having the vaccines. I mean, when we traveled abroad for my wedding last year, Michael, you had to be vaccinated twice. That was, of course, internally within the European Union or formerly European Union. Britain's no longer in it. We went to Malta. You had to be vaccinated twice. You had to take a test, I think, before leaving and then a test, I think, 24 hours after arriving. I have no problem with that. But I agree, you know, as this as this thing develops over the next two, three, four years, we may get variants which are far less powerful than Omicron, which have a very different nature. And I think it's it's good to have flexible, adaptive thinking here. I see where you're coming from. Um, but Australia's had that approach. It's worked out relative, relatively well for them. I mean, they've had fewer fatalities uh, per head. I could be wrong in places like Britain and the United States. But that's a public policy decision made by them. I can see the advantages for it, sure. Because you, you brought up, you know, people saying we're, we're pro-vaccine passports. Basically, I think it's a very practical question. I don't think they're as dystopian as some people make out. I, I do think that if you can make pubs and clubs safer for people who are immunocompromised, then it's a compromise which is worth making. At the same time, it does seem that Omicron is potentially changing what being vaccinated means. Because yes, it really, really, really protects you against severe disease, protects you against long COVID, protects you against hospitalization. But as so many of us now know, it does not protect you particularly well against infection, because I, I now know tens of people who are tested positive for Omicron and all of them are double vaccinated, some of them triple vaccinated. So it's the, the epidemiological argument for everyone having to be vaccinated has become weaker. Let's go on to our next story. Molly May Haig is a British influencer who came second in the fifth series of Love Island. The 22-year-old has amassed more than 6 million followers on Instagram and after leaving Love Island was given a six-figure deal with the fashion brand Pretty Little Thing. She now serves for that company as a creative director. 
Now, you might think this all makes Molly May pretty lucky, but speaking to the Diary of a CEO podcast, she was clear that her fame and success is all down to hard work. Beyonce has the same 24 hours in a day that, that we do. And I just mm. think like it's literally, you're given one life and it's down to you what you do with it. Like you can literally go in any direction. And when I've spoken about that before in the past, I have been slammed a little bit with people saying, you know, like it's easy for you to say that, you know, you've grown up and you've not grown up in poverty. You've not grown up, you know, with major money struggles. So if you to sit there and say that we all have the same 24 hours in a day, it's not correct. And I'm like, but technically what I'm saying is correct. We, we do. So I understand that obviously we all have different backgrounds and we're all raised in different ways and we do have different financial situations. But I think if you want something enough, you can achieve it. And it just depends to what lengths you want to go to get where you want to be in the future. And I I'll go to any lengths. Like I, I've worked my absolute arse off to get where I am now. A lot of people don't think that and believe that, but it's true. I've worked so, so hard. So it is technically true. We all do have the same 24 hours. And therefore, according to Molly May, if you want to be as wealthy as her, you better work a bit harder. Molly May got thoroughly rinsed on social media for those comments. The original count account that posted the video, the video has now had um, over 10 million views, captioned it by saying, if you're homeless, just buy a house as a, a summary of her attitude. Journalist Louis Staples also tweeted this one went viral. Molly May is a prime example of how influencers promote individualist narratives and a very right-wing worldview. Factorite talking points dressed up in inspirational influencers speak. And our very own Ash Sarkar with another viral tweet. I, for one, did not see it coming that a woman who's 500 £1,000 branding deal is built on the backs of garment workers paid £3.50 an hour might have horrific views on poverty and social mobility. The reference there is to Pretty Little Thing, the company that pays Molly May half a million quid. That company is part of Boohoo, which is notorious for using factories which pay as little as £3.50 an hour. Some of those are in Leicester and were associated with COVID outbreaks when they kept running during lockdown. We've talked about that on previous shows. Aaron, what do you make of the backlash around those comments from Molly May? I think any 22-year-old who's kind of giving life advice to the rest of the world kind of needs to get a grip. You're 22. You're 22, <laughs> right? How, mu how much the world do you know? I mean, when I was 22, Michael, I couldn't even... I'm not using a sort of a metaphor here. I, I literally couldn't keep a houseplant alive when I was 22. So I don't quite understand how she thinks that she's kind of the oracle on how you can live your life and overcome all obstacles. Yes, of course, like you say, there are literally 24 hours in the day, but we all are differently abled. We all have different backgrounds. What if you've got to be a carer for your, your mum or your dad or brother or sister? What if you had a really troubling childhood and it's given you addiction problems? Great quote by Gabor Mate, dad of Aaron Mate. Don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. And there's many, many addicts in our society of all kinds. And that's not to stigmatize it, they just are. And they, they, they opt not always, but that often comes from a place of pain. So if she, doesn't, if she doesn't get that, I'm very happy for her on a personal level, but it's deeply damaging to use that as a basis by which to understand society. And furthermore, by which to run society and by which to say these institutions and these ways of doing things are legitimate because anybody can be a success story. Yes, in the abstract, of course they could, but I find this just such a ridiculous way of looking at things. You know, I could get a stone and I could walk down the street and I could throw a stone at a window and it wouldn't smash. 
And I could say, you know what? When I throw stones at windows, they don't smash. That's a universal law. It always applies. Therefore, you can throw as many stones at windows as you like. You know what? Pretty quickly, I'd be found out to be completely wrong. And so when people say, well, look at this person. They came from a really tough background and they've done so well. I'm happy for them. But that's no basis upon which to build society. And, and, and anybody who thinks that fundamentally there's a level playing field is either delusional or they're unaware of the facts because there the clearly isn't a, a level playing field. Of all the people, Michael, before we went on air today, I was watching GB News and there was the uh, Pimlico Plumbers guy, you know, Charlie, what's it, Charlie Mullins. And he was saying precisely this. So look, there's two groups of people here who I think are kind of suckers. First is Molly May, but then the people who are sort of listening to a 22-year-old talk about grind set and mindset and how to get ahead. Do yourselves a favor if you have children. Tell them to A, not listen to this. And if you do listen to this, you're a muppet. Enjoy yourself. Don't worry about hustle culture and side hustles. Do what you're passionate about. Do what you enjoy. And if you are successful, Christ, be humble about it. I worked hard. What, going to a villa for however many months? That's working hard? Again, I'm happy for you if you've done super well, but it's, it's not working hard. There are people getting up at three, four in the morning, getting two, three buses to go into central London or to Manchester or Birmingham to clean offices, to stack shelves, to drive the buses. That's hard work. And without those people, society doesn't function. And I say that as somebody, Michael, we here in our media, we love our jobs. We think we're doing useful jobs, important jobs. I think we are. We're not doing what people do cleaning hospitals or care work for the elderly, the very basic essentials and foundations for society to continue. So get a grip, be humble, enjoy the fact you're so successful, but stop pontificating to the rest of us. All right, Aaron, I want to put forward the other side of the argument. Most of Twitter, it's fairly sort of left-wing space, I think, generally, was ripping into Molly May. I've got a right-wing take for you. This is Tom Harwood, GB News commentator. So he tweeted, the right... Quotes, you can do it with hard work and self-belief. The left, you will never achieve it. The world is set against you. Don't bother trying. Individuals have no real agency. Everything is hopeless. And he says, I know which mindset I prefer. And I think he also went on to say, I know which mindset will make people more successful. It's very easy to make an argument when you're asserting the argument to the people you disagree with, which is factually inaccurate. The left literally <laughs> says... That the work, no, the, the left, literally the basis of left-wing egalitarian politics is to change society through ordinary people seeking political agency and transforming the world so that it's more equal and it better serves their interests. And by better serving the interests of ordinary people, it better serves the interests of society at large rather than a narrow elite. So it's a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous thing to say, Michael. I mean, it's a ridiculous, it's even, you know, it's at odds with like Marxism, the whole project of political Marxism, we don't need to talk about Marxism, but let's do it. The whole project is to transform society in the interests of working class people. The point is, what's your theory of change? For Molly May, actually, things don't change. So you do it at the level of the individual. For the left, we say, well, no, look, these are social problems. And so we have to act at scale and collectively. That's not to say, that's not to say, you know what, application is super important. Having a vision for what you want to do or achieve is super important. That doesn't need to be a business. It can be being a good parent. It can be being a good friend. If your friend has ever has depression or maybe seems down, call them. That makes a big difference, right? That's about being mindful and acting intentionally in the world. Super healthy. I'm glad for you if you're a good friend or a good parent or a good child, a good son, daughter. Great. 
but that is not that's not the, the the way that we should be sort of trying to solve the housing crisis. So we'll solve the housing crisis by telling everybody to just work as hard as they can to get on the housing ladder. Well, no, because houses are nine, ten times the average wage. How is that going to work unless you have collective action around low wages? There's a problem there. So I think I think also he's more intelligent than that himself. He's building a straw man, which is uh, which is fatuous. Of course, the argument he's making is a coherent one. It's also got no basis in reality. The left wing argument is that you you make change collectively. Also, though, I mean, I do think there is space for individual success and individual you know innovation, whatever. But the left wing take is if you do have that achievement, you recognise that it was only possible because of you know your yes effort was involved, but yes also your social situation was necessarily involved and that means that if you've made it it's a responsibility to try and get rid of those barriers for other people which is what this complete false consciousness lie which says that if you've achieved it it's all because of effort that completely takes away any responsibility you might have to to make sure other people can have the same success you have done for someone who's going to stand up and say i worked really hard for my success She's not a good example of that. Like some some people who are very successful did work very hard and they made important innovations, which has changed our lives. She just looked pretty on telly and then got a marketing deal with with a clothing company. So for her sort of dead ideology, which she is pushing forward, she's not even a good advocate. Next story. LBC host Majid Nawaz has been dropped by the station. They announced the news in a tweet. So the tweet said, Majid Nawaz's contract with LBC is up very shortly and following discussions with him, Majid will no longer present a show on LBC with immediate effect. We thank Majid for the contribution he has made to LBC and wish him well. The breakup comes in the wake of interesting tweets and interventions from Nawaz over the past few months. Here he is on COVID. Um, So he tweeted recently, it's time we all spelt it out plainly, my friend. We are witnessing a global palace coup that suspends our rights under the guise of an emergency that has been proven to be manipulated by a network of fascists who seek a new world order governed by technocratic corporatism. We've also got one on state psyops and vaccines. So on that topic, he said, please pay close attention to my timeline. I'm trying to show you in real time how you're being targeted by state psyops and manipulative behavioral psychology. I see it from afar. I'm showing you with evidence in every post, more evidence than my detractors post combined and with with quite an out of place love heart. We'll keep showing you more of these tweets, which kind of explains why this this parting of ways has, has happened. This is when he blamed Antifa for the capital riots on the 6th of January 2021. So he says here, reports on protesters who stormed Capitol Hill being Antifa infiltrators are becoming impossible to ignore. If true, these may fuel a sense of betrayal among Trump supporters further. I am dismayed that pundits are not viewing this civil strife through a conflict resolution lens. And we have another on that topic. So he tweeted, evidence of Antifa's alleged role is coming in fast now, yet MSM are still seeking to tar me as a conspiracy theorist, merely for spotting early that this would become impossible to ignore. I mean, he's sharing a tweet by the 40th police commissioner of New York City. And then he also, he sort of backed the whole election is being stolen here. Are we ready for this discussion, folks? Orders two plus two equal five. 
Aaron, are you surprised that LBC have made this decision? He's been on air spouting a lot of nonsense and a lot of nonsense about vaccines and COVID-19 for a long period of time, which is a very dangerous thing to be platforming. Are you surprised it took this long? Are you surprised it's happened at all? Well, I, I need to be very judicious in what I say here, Michael, because, of course, Mr. Nawaz has been rather litigious to me in the past. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry, you don't want to tr tread on eggshells here. L let's try and be clear about what's happened. And I, I don't think this is an exaggeration. Many of the things that you just highlighted there in those tweets resemble the kinds of rhetoric and vocabulary you see from QAnon. So the idea, for instance, that the, the media is using the word was psyops and manipulation. They literally talk about NLP being used at mass scale by legacy media to reprogram people. He's talking about the fact that the last election was stolen. We, we know about that. Uh, he, he talks about many of the things, actually, recently there's a great interview out on Channel 5 News in the US with Jacob Angeli, you know, the QAnon shaman. Much of the rhetoric is incredibly similar, incredibly similar. And I find it remarkable that actually, like you say, he, he was a broadcaster for so long saying these things. And people say, oh, this is all new with Majid Nawaz. Maybe it's not. I mean, maybe he's, you know, he, maybe he's been saying strange things, but maybe the stakes are higher now. And I think maybe that's something we could apply to society and, and journalism more generally, is that, you know, it's, look, it's one thing to say strange things about Muslims, or I'm not suggesting he said that, but something like Katie Hopkins, for instance, would say extraordinarily toxic things about migrants with no basis in fact, etc. When you're doing that in regards to a potential uprising, trying to subvert a democratic election in the United States, or when you're talking about the efficacy of a vaccine with regards to the world's worst pandemic in 100 years, the stakes are a bit higher. You know, maybe there isn't this big signal shift in the kinds of things that he talks about, but the issues are that much more important. LBC have a, have a bit of history here, don't they? They've had Katie Hopkins, they've had Farage, now Majid Nawaz. And, and for me, really, that tells you something about that station more broadly, which is if Britain does have a Fox News, it's LBC. Because it's, it's people often just saying the strangest things live on air and just kind of dropping opinion. And it's got no basis in sort of journalistic research or original news gathering. And it's very similar to the kind of magazine show approach that you see with Fox News which is somebody like Tucker Carlson or, you know, uh, all manner of people we can talk about. Uh, MSNBC do a little bit too. Those are the two channels in the US, which was quite similar. It's personality-led. What does this particular personality think about these three issues today? Probably, probably not a wise way to conduct the news. By all means, do comment journalism. We do it here at Navarra Media, but it's the entire basis of LBC. I think that's troubling. I mean, you can talk about maybe, did you know, his, are you going to talk about his sub stack as well, Michael? I mean, I found that quite, quite funny. Yeah, we'll go to, we'll go to his response to the parting of ways in a moment. You know, in defense of LBC, which I mean, I think I agree with a lot of your criticisms of it, but it, how they would respond to say, we're not like Fox News is because we do, you know, platform a variety of opinions in a way that Fox doesn't. And also Majid Nawaz has now gone. And I, and I do think that one thing I'm quite grateful about British political culture is that we haven't created an enormous space for the spouting of anti-vax conspiracies in the same way that they have done in, in America. And looking from the outside on America, the sort of anti-science drive that sort of motivates the Republican Party and Fox News, that's where it seems like God's societal collapse is happening here. And that mm. kind of anti-science nonsense 
yeah, it crept into Majid Nawaz's weekly show. But he was actually fairly unique in sort of the, the, the British broadcast press in that respect. There is an enormous consensus about vaccines working, which you don't see in, for example, the United States. So you, I think you could make the argument that this, this shows that LBC isn't like Fox News. Look, even Trump in the US says that vaccines work. So there, there are very few people, right, very few people who say vaccines don't work. I think there are even, even if you speak to the, the spiked lot over here or, you know, the, the people in The Spectator, they don't say that the vaccines don't work. They just say that, oh, actually, my personal liberty trumps the epidemiological kind of advantages that that would confer. So, some people say that the vaccines don't work, but they are they're quite slender in that broader anti-vax or vaccine skeptic movement. I don't know the latest with Toby Young, for instance. I mean, he he seems to sort of flip between the two. I'm talking about America. I'm I'm saying I'm I'm agreeing yeah. that anti-vax sentiment is incredibly marginal in this country, but it's it's more widespread in in the United States. I, is why I'm saying I'm I'm sort of grateful like, of that difference. But even even Trump said, you know, the vaccines work, and he's taken a bit of a hit from his base. But I think that there's probably quite a few Trump supporters that accept they work, but they have other criticisms of them. I don't agree with those. In response to your point about Fox News. I think you're right. And the reason is not political, cultural. We're more grown up. We're more intelligent. It's the BBC. And I have many criticisms of the BBC. I think there are big criticisms you can make of public service broadcast generally and the extent, you know, how much market share they have. But when you have a, a, a broadcast or on radio, TV news, 70, 80% of news market share, it's very hard for the kinds of things that you see in the United States to kind of take hold. I think people have tried, Michael. And I think LBC, yes, not on this, but if you look at their, it's not balanced. You've got James O'Brien. Okay, fine. You've got Sheila Fogarty. Fine. You've got Nick Ferrari, Farage, Katie Hopkins, Majid Nawaz. And I, I don't think it adequately, adequately reflects British society. I have far more respect for them, Michael, LBC that is, if they had that roster and then had people like Ash Sarkar, Owen Jones. What, I get that, right? Dave Ward from the CWU. But they don't. That's because it's a right-wing news channel. And it's personality led. That's where I see the similarities with Fox News. And it has very low, has very low, extraordinarily low journalistic standards. For me, the nadir was when LBC itself, and this reminded me of Fox News, collected a dossier of anti-Semitic or alleged anti-Semitic incidents. I'm sure some of them were, some of them weren't. Um, and they submitted that dossier themselves to the London Metropolitan Police Service. And that became a news story. That's the exact kind of thing that Fox News does. And the word for that in the United States and the literature is pseudo events. So rather than report the news, you create pseudo events. You, 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 you generate pseudo events where you, you can create the story or, for instance, Benghazi and Hillary Clinton. You keep on talking about it until it becomes the news. That's something which actually in the British media landscape, LBC is quite unique at doing. I'm not saying they're as bad as Fox News, partly because I don't think they've got the resources. And of course, the political context is different. But if we do have something in this country like them, I think it's LBC. Let's move on to Majid Nawaz's response, because you're right, it is fairly entertaining. So he tweeted, or he quote tweeted that LBC tweet announcing his departure by saying, I refuse to go quietly into the night. Please become a paid subscriber to my Substack newsletter. I'll post there soon, but forgive the basic setup for now. I have a wife and child to support, and my show was our family's only source of income. I was considering it was a one, I think it's three hours a week. So he presumably wasn't doing any work on the side. He then goes on. Points of information. I had been scheduled to appear tomorrow. I did not quit. My contract expires in April 2022. And make of that what you will. And fourth, no, this does not mean I'm on air again till April. I'm off permanently. I'm kind of surprised that was his only source of income. But 
There you go. So he's not doing the whole sort of like, oh, this was a mutually agreed thing. He's saying, look, they've kicked me out. I'm not happy about it. Subscribe to my Substack. What do you make of that response? It's quite funny in so much as you get these you get these moments, Michael, where I thought when LBC tweeted that there was obviously some kind of negotiation with Majid Nawaz. Maybe you get a, a pay settlement, you know, mutual agreement. You can leave under good terms. The way they were trying to frame it, you know, he was meant to go in April. He's just leaving now. So I thought maybe he kind of was was part of that 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 negotiation. And of course, he tweets this, and it seems entirely unilateral, where they've not even basically told him it's happening, or they've just they've basically they've basically sacked him with immediate effect. I don't know, but given what he's saying, and given what LBC's saying, I mean, that, I would suggest that's what is being indicated by the two parties. He could have left, and he could have kind of concurred with their framing, and he could have maybe gone to GB News or Talk Radio. Maybe he still can. I like you say, Michael. I mean, wow, we talk about post-capitalism, and he's of course he's a he's a staunch critic of socialism. But my God, that's pretty close to a post-work society if you're raising a family in London on three hours work a week. That's pretty good. Even John Maynard Keynes said in uh, Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, even he was talking about three hours a day. So if we're talking about somebody prefiguring a world beyond work and capitalism, imagine the words, you're a good place to start. Yeah, I'm kind of jealous. I want that slot if it pays that well. Final story is a quick one. The UK is facing a series of interlocking crises. We are still learning to live with an ever-evolving novel coronavirus. Rising energy bills and stagnant wages mean families are facing a crunch in the cost of living. And towering above all these problems, we stand on the precipice of climate catastrophe. Yet amid all the existential gloom, our leaders in Westminster have more immediate concerns on their minds. I know the minister will agree that the singing of the national anthem is something that provides great sense of unity and pride in our nation. And so in this year of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, will the minister take steps to encourage public broadcasters to play the national anthem and ensure that the BBC restore it at the end of the day's programming before it switches to News 24? Well, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, we fully support the singing of the national anthem. Uh, the Her Majesty the Queen and other expressions of patriotism, including the flying of the Union Jack. Uh, the more that we hear, hear the national anthem sung, frankly, uh, the better. Of course, organisations like schools are free to promote it. Uh, and the more we can do in this area, the better it will be. So that was Tory backbencher Andrew Rosendale asking the question, followed by a yelp of approval from the Culture Secretary Nadine Doris and then Culture Minister Chris Philp answered it. Aaron, I want your thoughts on this. Should the BBC play the national anthem at the end of each day and why is this being debated in the House of Commons? I thought it did. I mean, I'm, it shows you how sort of maybe I'm getting old. Like, they do on Radio 4, right? I know, I know they do on Radio 4 because I heard it once and I was like, mm, that's, that's kind really? of weird. I think before they go, yeah, before they pass over to the world, well, it shows you what time I go to bed sometimes. But, you know, they, they were passing over to the world service at like 2 a.m. or something and they go, they start, yeah, God save the Queen. What's going on here? Look, this year we're going to see energy bills increase potentially by 50%. There is a direct relationship between that and the Conservative Party talking about flags and the bloody national anthem. The more that the material consequences of them being in power deteriorate for ordinary people, the electorate, the more they're going to lean into just complete nonsense. Well, I think we can't sing the national anthem enough. What, so 
So presumably everybody should sing the national anthem all the time and that would equal some kind of national utopia. Surely there is some point of declining, uh, what's the word, Michael? Surely there's a point of marginal declines in terms of, uh, of use. If you, you could sing it too much. Apparently not. I mean, we can't have enough flags and enough singing of the national anthem. I, I, I think it tells you about a, a, a Tory party which is politically exhausted. In the 80s under Margaret Thatcher when they did this stuff, they did it in tandem with a, a quite popular, a, a sufficiently popular program of economic liberalisation and endorsement of the free market in a way that I don't think is replicable in the 21st century because there's nothing left to privatise, but that's a whole other debate. Now, with Boris Johnson, it's not really tied to any broader project. I thought it was. I thought post-Brexit and the levelling up, I thought there'd be a sort of a red UKIP politics aligning a measure of egalitarian sort of policy, state intervention, reindustrialization with this kind of stuff. And I think that can be very successful. Where I think many Tory politicians and pundits get it wrong is they think, oh, you know what, we can jettison all that. We don't need to worry about child poverty. We don't need to worry about people being unable to get onto the housing ladder or NHS waiting times. We can just talk about the national anthem and flags and everything's fine. I think eventually that comes up against the wall. Maybe that doesn't mean they lose the next election. Maybe it means a massive decline in turnout. Maybe it means ultimately the Tory party loses ever greater parts of the UK. It's kind of already happened in Scotland, where actually, in a quite substantial way, even they are quite different to the English Tory party because it's so ridiculous. I, I think there's an overhead here because it's not a serious political project. You can't govern a, a major economy in the 21st century, talking about fucking flags and national anthem all of the time. There has to be something behind it. The reason why they won the Metro Mayor in the Northeast with, with Ben Houchin, or the reason why they won the Hartlepool by-election, the reason why they did quite well in Batley and Spen, or the local elections in May, was because on the economy, they were sort of moving slightly left. They're rhetorically saying quite interesting things about what Britain could be in, in a post-Brexit era. That seems to have been dropped, or it's being dropped. Well, let's see. But I think this this kind of... This bizarro world they're going into where the entirety of the country resembles last night of the proms, I think that runs out of gas quite quickly. Does the law of diminishing returns apply to singing the national anthem is a question we will save for another day. Aaron Bastani, it's been a pleasure speaking to you this evening. It was my pleasure, Michael. Great show. Great to be back. What can I say? You're too kind, Aaron Bastani. It's been a, I'm enjoying speaking to you in 2022 just as much as I did in 2021. We'll end this love fest now, though. Thank you so much for watching tonight. Thank you for your super chats. Thank you for your support. If you're a regular donors, andavaramedia.com forward slash support. We'll be back on Monday at 7 p.m. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.